What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As the number of people infected by a new coronavirus rises, our correspondent continues his reports from around China. A mass mobilization is underway, reminiscent of Chairman Mao-era efforts, but there's a noticeable undercurrent of distrust. Meanwhile, health authorities the world over are trying to understand more about the disease's transmission and its mortality. The first question is whether it can be contained. The next, how soon a vaccine will be brought to bear. And a look at the increasing occurrence of ratings at work. You're accustomed to leaving a review for your driver from Lyft, Uber or Ola, but what about when the one-star rating comes for you? The coronavirus outbreak shows no sign of abating. Yesterday, officials in China released their latest daily death toll from the virus. 97 people lost their lives, bringing the total to over 900. That is more fatalities than the outbreak of the related SARS virus caused in 2002 and 2003. More than 40,000 people have been diagnosed with the new virus in mainland China. One of the early interventions of Chinese officials was to extend the Lunar New Year holiday until today. But plenty of businesses remain shuttered. Some of the biggest have delayed the return to work by another week. In big cities, workers are being encouraged to work from home. In some villages, people are opting to remain sequestered. In others, government officials are ensuring it. The Communist Party is still projecting a sense of complete control over the situation, though it's clear not everyone is convinced. This is the beginning of a pretty crucial week. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. For a long time, it's just been an unusually extended break for Lunar New Year, but now people really are meant to be coming back to work. Offices and businesses are meant to be coming back to life. Millions and millions of migrant workers are supposed to be heading back towards big cities, but actually sitting in Beijing right now, the streets are basically still empty, Controls are getting even tighter, apartment buildings, housing compounds near here are getting new checkpoints and even stricter controls. So actually, for now, it feels anything but normal. And, and meanwhile, these, these enormous hospitals are still being built at, at speed. Yeah, it's quite a sight. I was at one in the province of Hunan, uh, the city of Changde, uh, about a week ago. Uh, not far from the worst affected province, Hubei. They at the time only had about 45 cases, but they had emptied an entire hospital and they were busy building a brand new 200-bed temporary hospital uh, in the car park, effectively, this huge kind of construction site. I asked uh, one of the managers of the hospital uh, when they'd started. She said three days ago. And uh, when was it going to be finished? In about two weeks' time. So you can see this extraordinary top-down effort. 
And what do the, the people make of that? Uh, when, when last we spoke, there was, there was more uh, confusion than, than conviction about what was going on. Well, the problem that the government has is that people are reluctant to show themselves and to go to a hostel unless they're sure that there is good treatment there for them. So one of the reasons we think there may be many more infections out there is that if you're running a fever, but you've seen shots and scenes of chaos and uh, lots of sick people basically without much care, it feels safer or has felt safer to hide indoors and not show yourself. So that's a big part of this. The other thing is, in addition to that very top-down Communist Party commands a million bulldozers to build hospitals side of the response, there's also something much more old-fashioned, a kind of mass mobilization, where in these small villages that I also went to a few days ago in Hunan province, at the very grassroots level, some of the most basic kind of Mao-era techniques of propaganda banners hanging from every street. Loudspeakers in the trees uh, that and on lampposts blasting out eight hours a day of virus advice messages from the local propaganda bureau. It's a very much a kind of mass campaign out there in the countryside. So is that working to your mind? Are the, are the people kind of buying this, this blanket message and this sense of, of overall top-down, fast-moving control? It's a mixed picture. So when I was out in the villages, people are remarkably tolerant of the incredible disruption of all these roadblocks and quarantines and people being told to stay indoors and not see their own families. They're very tolerant of that because they see a kind of national, kind of what they call a people's war underway, and they're all foot soldiers in that war. But there's a flip side to that which is that officials assuring them that the government has this under control and that if the government says something is safe, you can believe them. That's much, much more tricky for the Communist Party. And the most spectacular example of that was in the city of Wuhan, where the virus first emerged, where a doctor, Li Wenliang, uh, died at the end of last week. Now, he was one of about a dozen doctors who reported this virus very, very early in their own private medical networks, And he was punished by the police and made to sign a humiliating letter saying that he'd made the whole thing up and promised not to spread word of this again. He then, in a really painful irony, got the disease himself and has just died of it. That has triggered the most extraordinary national reaction, not just from the kind of political commentators who you see on Chinese social media kind of pushing the envelope, but lots and lots, millions of ordinary Chinese who almost never express a political opinion, expressing explicitly political opinions about the reason that this heroic doctor, in their words, died was because China does not have free speech. So making judgments about the nature of the Chinese political system and a real fury until the censors started hauling all of these postings off the internet. And so to your mind, does, does that present the sort of the, 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 the first shoots of real political dissent here? Is, is this crisis a potential threat to, to the party's rule? Um, I don't think it is the start of a kind of revolution or a dissident movement or another kind of Tiananmen incident. Uh, There's a couple of reasons for that. There's a very basic reason, which is that in the past, the death of a good official has been a very potent event in Chinese history and public memorials spontaneously forming have been the beginnings of mass political campaigns. But right now, people are scared to go out. People are scared of crowds. And so the conditions are just not there for people to start spontaneously gathering anywhere. The other side of this is that the Chinese Communist Party has an extraordinarily tight grip on this place. And I think when people are saying that they hate how the system basically led to the death of this doctor, 
they're not really saying that with any belief that the system can change. They just like it fixed a bit to be a bit less brutal, to have a bit more free speech. And the propaganda machine is now taking charge. So we saw very quickly after the death of the doctor, Dr. Lee, uh, we saw the state media saying that he was a great hero, uh, that the central government was going to send investigators down to the provinces to see if there was corruption. And so it's that age-old Chinese narrative that there is a good central government and that there are bad, corrupt officials in the provinces. And so that narrative, whether not that many people in China may be ready to believe that right now, but that's the narrative rumbling into life once again. And what about your own experience in terms of the, the control of the message? I mean, for, for a while, it seemed remarkably open for, for journalists to get in to, to get the story on the ground and to, to try to understand what's actually going on. Is, is that still the case? It's getting much tighter. So not just for foreign correspondents like me, but even more and at much higher stakes for some very brave Chinese journalists who are really, really uh, testing the limits of what they could do by going to the sort of heart of the virus zone. But even someone like me traveling in provinces around the quarantine zone, they've started using the threat of quarantine very effectively to tell us that we can choose to either spend 14 days of quarantine in a hotel somewhere in the provinces, or we can go straight back to Beijing and get out of their hair. And so you see uh, explicit threats. So even my most recent trip to Hunan, I'd been out in the field for a few hours uh, interviewing people, and then they started calling my taxi driver fairly constantly. And at one point saying, you know, maybe I'd been to the most infected areas in Hubei, maybe I wasn't really a journalist at all, much best to take me back to the airport and stick me straight back on the plane to Beijing. So early indications are that the sort of political containment is working, but what's your view from the ground on the degree to which what China has done here, this kind of these, these drastic measures, these shutdowns, these lockdowns, in terms of the containment of the virus itself? It's a very good question, and really you have to answer it kind of two ways. The first way is, imagine that everything they're doing is quite effective, but is amazingly brutal. Will we start to think that the costs of this extraordinary quarantine of tens of millions of people are so high that even if it's working, it looks like a very costly thing to do? Unfortunately, we still can't even answer the second question, which is, is it even working properly? Because one of the big problems is that as they increasingly aggressively try and push people who might have the virus into these fever hospitals to get tested and to put them in, in contact with lots of other sick people, people have been resisting because they don't trust these hostels to have the right medicines, the right test kits. And so I think we're going to see over the next few days the level of coercion and control rising. If that's not matched by medical supplies and help for people as they're forced into these quarantine hospitals... I think that could get politically very bumpy for them. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. While China bears the brunt of the virus outbreak, another pressing question is how far it will spread. New diagnoses are trickling in every day beyond the mainland, primarily in Southeast Asia, but also in Europe and the Americas. The World Health Organization has already deemed the outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. After some wrangling with Chinese officials, it sent an advance team to Beijing. And it's convening a meeting of 400 experts to lay out how a coordinated international response should deal with genetic and epidemiological data. What's needed are more reliable tests, dependable treatments, and, of course, a vaccine. But for now, the most urgent concern is whether the current outbreak can be slowed or stopped. 
So in general, there are two ways this could go. Slavia Chankova is our health correspondent. One is that this virus or the spread of it is containable. So the Chinese are able to contain the outbreak. It doesn't spread rapidly overseas. The few cases that we see being exported are contained within those countries. That's the best case scenario. On the other hand, it could happen that this virus is simply not containable, in which case it will be something like the seasonal flu. The measures that public health authorities put in place are just to try to mitigate the impact of the disease. So vaccinate the people who are most vulnerable, try to not get them very exposed to the virus and so on and so forth. But it's basically a strategy of saying, we cannot contain this thing, it's here to stay, we just have to mitigate the impact. And so what about those efforts towards a vaccine? Where are they at this point? Things are looking quite good in this case for several reasons. The first is that there was a lot of vaccine research going on for MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and SARS, which are related coronaviruses. That research is coming in very handy at the moment. The second reason for optimism on the vaccine front is that with modern technologies for developing vaccines, things can move much faster than they typically will with the most recent vaccines that we've had. Why is that? That's because normally the way a vaccine is developed, you deal with the virus itself. So you inactivate it or weaken it in some ways and then make a vaccine out of that. In this case, researchers around the world were able to actually get started on developing a vaccine even before they had actual samples of the virus. When Chinese researchers published the genomic sequence of the virus, researchers around the world immediately could use that information to develop synthetic bits of the virus and knowing which bits are responsible for infection, use those in developing the vaccines. And so from your viewpoint, is that what the future of a very kind of reactive effort in the cases of of outbreaks, that's how it will go? That's how vaccines could be more nimbly created is just simply based on the genetic code? Yes, that's certainly the goal. And there have been lots of efforts already underway to prepare what people call plug and play methods for vaccine development. So you have some sort of molecular platform. And when a new pathogen comes along, you can just take the genomic information of that pathogen, slot that in your molecular platform, which has already been tested in some ways to make sure that, you know, it it can work as a vaccine. And then there you go. You have a vaccine ready to be tested. Of course, you still have to test it uh, on people to make sure it's safe, to make sure it's actually effective. But this has already been done, for example, with vaccines for Ebola, Zika, MERS. So this preliminary work in developing a vaccine and testing it in the first you know, cohort of very healthy volunteers, 20 or 25 people, has already been proven to work with these methods. How long does it look as if it's going to be before there is a widespread, widely available vaccine for this virus? With luck, we're probably looking at something along the lines of a year So obviously, you have to do uh, lots of tests to ensure that the vaccine is safe, that what you're producing is giving you at least some initial indication that it's effective. But eventually, you would have to do large-scale clinical trials in an outbreak setting where you can actually measure what's the rate of protection that the vaccine gives you. And that's where things 
could possibly slow down because if the outbreak in China burns out by the time a vaccine is ready, then researchers will just have to wait for smaller outbreaks that may be popping up here and there, rush in to test the vaccine and see how effective it is before they recommend giving it to everyone. So it may be the case in the long run that this is, as you say, like seasonal flu, we would get a seasonal, this coronavirus shot. Yeah, that's a possibility, especially once it's established which groups are most susceptible to the virus. At this point, it seems it's older people who have pre-existing conditions, which is the same as with the flu. So you would just prioritize them for vaccination as well as healthcare workers. And what's your view about the extreme response that we've seen from China, these lockdowns and, and quarantines and the like? From an epidemiological point of view, do you think that might prove to have been the best way for China to have tackled the outbreak? It's really difficult to tell. Obviously, these draconian measures cannot be instituted all over the world every time the virus shows up. But what the Chinese are doing, everybody agrees, is that at the very least, they're buying the world extra time so that if this does spread beyond the borders of China more widely, the world has more time to develop a vaccine. Thank you very much for your time, Slavia. Thank you, Jason. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. How would you like to be rated at work? Five stars for punctuality, three stars for efficiency? Uber drivers deal with this every day. The practice of rating workers is spreading far beyond the gig economy. More and more people are being rated and numbered on the basis of their work. Philip Coggan writes The Economist's Bartleby column on work and management. Somebody who works in a factory is probably used to. They have to clock in at a certain time, clock out at a certain time, produce a certain amount on the shift. But it's now extending across a whole range of works. So talk me through the full scope of it. What, what is the rating that goes so far beyond the factory worker type? Well, there are two ways of thinking about it. And it, this occurred to me when a close friend was told that the department was losing 2.6 workers. And it sounds so odd. What's 0.6 of a worker? But if you think about it, more and more of us are freelance. We work part time. We're on contracts. So to the company, we are a fraction of a worker. We only there 30% of the time, 40% of the time. And at the same time, we're in jobs which, you know, in the old days were quite hard to classify what we did. The response through the internet has been to come up with rating systems for particular jobs, Uber drivers, for example. But also human resources departments are starting to think about how to judge whether they're hiring the right kind of employees. And that comes up with algorithms to select employees for CVs and tests to try and rate you in terms of certain abilities like teamwork, general intelligence. So there's one study which found that there was a 65% correlation between your skill at general mental ability tests and your success in a job. And so obviously, if you get that kind of very good figure out of it, people are going to give more IQ tests to people who they're trying to recruit. 
Well, I guess that's the the kinds of ratings you get before you get the job. But what about when you get the job? Well, when you get the job, if many of us have been through the annual review where they sort of tick the box and say, oh, well, you did pretty well this year, Jason, and maybe you could just talk more quickly on the Intelligence Podcast or, you know, add in a few more jokes or something like that. Some way that's pretty hard for you to have a realistic measure of whether you're succeeding or not. And now more and more people are being rated in terms of specific behaviors. Get the other employees to grade you for teamwork, for example, or innovation. And so, you know, in 10 years, 20 years time, this is obviously slowly developing. It may not be where you went to university that's important. It may be, you know, how you can show that I'm rated 4.3 on teamwork. Just like you go on TripAdvisor, you judge a hotel or you look at an Uber driver or Airbnb listing. When you are a worker, you'll be carrying around that I am 4.9 out of a scale of five, presumably, on teamwork and affability. So is it a good thing or a bad thing or is it just a thing? There's some good elements of it. What worries me is that some of it's arbitrary. So we all know that with Uber drivers. I don't know if you've ever given an Uber driver less than five. It was a hairy ride, I have to say. (laughs) We all tend to feel five. And I, for some reason, my average isn't five, though I don't know what I ever did to an Uber driver to upset them. You know, some days you can be a bad mood. You know, the traffic was terrible, for example, and you give a lower rating when it wasn't probably the Uber driver's fault. And the danger is if you just use rating scales, which are putting a number on a very subjective feeling, and that makes it look sort of pseudo-scientific when it isn't really scientific. And you could, of course, if your rating falls fast enough, lose your ability to job. And I think it's generally dehumanizing. We don't want to feel like 0.6 of a worker. Do you think we as journalists are in danger of this? It's already happening in some magazines. You are paid based on how many clicks you get for an article you write. So you can read more about this in my next column, which is how the Kim Kardashian diet can improve your IQ and job prospects. If you've enjoyed your experience here, Phil, do leave me a rating. I will. Five stars. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.